following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to... Where are we? Mythgard Academy! That's where we are. It's Wednesday. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. Uh, this is session number seven of our discussion of Inferno. Uh, and uh, I, join, I join you live from the fifth circle of hell tonight. As you can see, this is a... Uh, it's me and Dante and Virgil on the boat. There's Virgil in the foreground and Dante in the background. I think that's Phlegius over there rowing the boat. Uh, and you can see the wrathful and sullen there in the water uh, reaching up. I don't know if that's F Filippo Argenti about to get punted by Virgil off the punt or what, but anyway, there it is. Um, so, so yeah, as you can see, I'm playing with my, my new piece of software I just recently got, uh, which... Um, uh, is I've been having fun with. Um, <laughs> all right, cool. So, um, before we begin our discussion tonight, I just wanted to do a couple of announcements because we're coming to the end of the year. Uh, so there are a few end of the year type things. One, uh, just quick, I wanted to remind folks that um, our uh, anytime audit special is still happening. We're having our holiday anytime audit special. A bunch of people have been availing themselves of that so that we could, um, you know, so folks can uh, be uh, giving anytime audits uh, from Signum uh, University as presents this year. That's been, uh, we've, we've got we've got a bunch of uh, uh, folks who have been excited about that. So just wanted to draw people's attention to that. That's definitely a really fun um, uh, uh, a, a really fun uh, uh gift idea uh for the uh for the geeks on your list uh you know the our fellow fellow geeks and nerds um the uh the other thing of course uh, brief reminder our spring courses will be beginning fairly quickly after new Year's. so uh for those of you who are thinking about maybe auditing a course or um those of you who are planning to sign up for courses don't forget to do that because we're coming up on that pretty soon um and we are also coming up on uh, January. Right, the other thing in January, that's the other thing I almost forgot. Um, don't forget about Signum Paths. Our Signum Path courses are starting up in January, and we are, uh, we're going to be opening up again our person-to-person -person badge. So that's, that's our emotional intelligence course and conflict resolution, uh, uh, course, those, those, uh, that set of courses. Um, and uh, those are really, really beneficial. So for those of you who have uh, been uh, done some of our PATH uh, courses in the fall, uh, opportunities to not only continue uh, your PATH studies, but to, to expand them uh, in some new directions. And if you haven't tried out PATH yet, you really should. It's really wonderful. Um, a real brief couple sentence synopsis for those of you who don't know what Signum PATH is and haven't heard me talk about this before. Signum PATH is one of our new programs at Signum University. It's a professional development development program designed to help people develop uh, their, their, their people skills, uh, their foundational skills, as we call them. Uh, we focus especially on writing, uh, writing in different contexts, writing effectively, uh, and communicating verbally effectively, oral communications as well, um, from, uh, you know, from delivering speeches to uh, listening carefully and participating well uh, at things like meetings and stuff like that, to giving presentations. Um, all really, really important skills to have <clears throat> no matter what kind of job you do and no matter where you go. Uh, it's really
really important for you to be able to do this. And of course, our person-to-person -person badge, um, how to connect with people, how to relate to people, how to read people's signals and things like that. These are really important things to, to be able to do um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a professional environment. So those are uh, great. Yeah, Tomas says that he just completed his first badge. Excellent, excellent. So anyway, don't forget, we're uh, in the beginning of the month of January. We're going to be starting up our new term. We do our, our, each of these courses is just a month long, um, so we, we do a new uh, a new little path term every single month. Um, so we're going to be doing another month. We've taken the month of December off because of the holidays and everything, but we're going to be starting back up again in January. So wanted to draw people's attention to that path.signumuniversity.org, and you can hit the registration button there to register for courses anytime from January, February, and March. And the final reminder is as we come up to the end of December, um, I would just ask that you remember Signum if you find yourself making end of the year tax plans. Um, I know that the end of December is when people often think about, uh, you know, their tax accounts for the year and think about doing charitable giving uh, in order to have deductions that count within the 2020 tax year. Um, if you're doing that, I just ask you to remember Signum University. We are, of course, a tax-exempt uh, tax institution, uh, and uh, we, we would be very, very happy to enjoy your, your tax break with you. Um, uh, the support we get from our uh, folks is crucially important. Um, so just a little brief reminder there. Um, okay. Those are my end-of-the-year reminders. I will add one last thing so that I don't, just in case I forget to say this at the end of class, which I might. Um, um, yeah, exactly. Coley is pointing out that with the CARES Act, anybody can deduct up to $300. Yeah, so even if you take the standard de deduction for your taxes, you can add a $300 deduction on top of that for charitable giving. So there you go. Absolutely. Um, okay, so the other thing that I wanted to mention before I forget. Um, I'm, I'm gonna. My availability is gonna be weird over the next couple of weeks, um, so we're. I'm just gonna. We're. Just, I'm just doing a little holiday hiatus. Uh, so after this week, we're not gonna have. Uh, we're not gonna meet again uh, for the next two weeks. So the next two weeks, I'll be off broadcasting, um, uh, doing family stuff and holiday stuff, and then we'll be back in January. So uh, after tonight, the next session, session eight will happen on the, I don't remember the number, but whatever the first Wednesday of January is, we'll be back in, in, in January. Um, uh, so, um, yeah. And Carolyn, yes, there is a special price uh, for the Anytime Audits. Now, Anytime Audits are, are the uh, where you can go into the Signum catalog and get the lecture materials from any of our courses. Um, that's, uh, yeah, so the normal tuition rate is $95 for that. Uh, you can get the, for the holidays, you can get any one you want for $75. You can get that as a gift certificate to give to someone else. Uh, that's really, uh, uh, that's going to be, that's, it's, it's a really fun opportunity. So yeah, Carolyn, that's how that works. Um, okay, cool. So I think that's all my announcements. All right, uh, let us get back into things. And I'm also remembering, Serena, to answer your question. Uh, before I started, Serena was asking me a question before class uh, that I was uh, trying to remember to answer, and I, I have remembered it. Now I'm like opening up the wrong piece of software to try to find her question where she sent it to me before, and now I'm hunting for it all over my window. There it is. Okay, I found it. There it is. Okay. Sort of. I buried it again. There it is. Okay. Um, she was asking 
Uh, she said she, she she wants to hear more about the embodiment question. She says, I'm confused what he's doing with the intensely sensory and physical punishments at the same time that he's claiming that the damned don't have bodies. And of course, uh, Serena, as I think you would point out, I mean, I, I, one of the things I think that suspect that prompted this was we've just come to one of the big reminders of the difference, right, of the of his physical body, like the, the weight in the boat, right, uh, is this big reminder of the fact that he's the only one walking around hell with a body. Um, uh, anyway, right, okay, so so um, my point is just that not only is that true, he goes out of his way to draw our attention to it, right, so it's kind of a big deal. Okay, um, is it a Gnostic thing or the opposite? Um, okay, so... I don't know. I have no idea. Well, okay, no, I have an idea, but I don't, like, have any authoritative idea. Or rather, the ideas that I have are, this is just, this is just me, this is just me making stuff up. So, disclaimer, this is me making stuff up. Um, But here's what I'd say to it. One thing that is very remarkable about Dante's work about Dante's accomplishment. And I mean, not just his poetic accomplishment, not just his sort of like the accomplishment of the like complexity of the, 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 the stuff that he's doing, all these different things. Uh, those are all, of course, obviously wonderful accomplishments, but that's not the accomplishment I'm talking about. The accomplishment that I'm talking about is his narrative accomplishment the kind of story that he tells and how compelling and the ways in which, the particular ways in which that story has always been compelling for many people. That's a very remarkable thing. And I want to draw attention to that in answering your question, Serena, because when I'm thinking about your question, the first thing that I, that I want to say is, I don't know... Okay. I know what I want to say. I don't know what's the first thing I want to say, though, actually. Okay. Let me go back to the beginning. <laughs> Canto one. That's, what I, that's where I want to start. Okay. Um, what I want to say is, this poem begins as a vision. Explicitly as a vision. Right? Like, it's kind of autobiographical. He's sort of the main character. Right? A sort of fictionalized version of himself as the main character. Um, but it's not, it's a vision. Again, there's a reason why this, this, you know, many people classed this poem with the dream visions, right? He doesn't explicitly fall asleep. Like, we don't get a real world, world frame, right? Of like Dante puttering around his study and like, you know, uh, letting the cat out and, and then going to bed and falling asleep and then having a dream, right? It's, it's not that kind of a dream vision frame. I mean, there are dream vision fo- poems like that, right? Um, but that's not, um, uh, that doesn't, that, um, it doesn't have that kind of frame. And yet, it does have a dream vision kind of frame. Like, at the same time, it's not like, on the, again, this is sort of autobiographical, but it's not like he's actually saying that this is exactly happening. I mean, it's still, it's it's a vision, right? In fact, you could say, Serena, of Dante's experience here, you could say, whether in the body or out of the body, God knows, right? <laughs> you know, I, I, who, who knows exactly, right? You know, 
it's a vision. That is, it doesn't exactly. So there are two different ways in which the narrative, the story, the events that Dante describes are separated from reality, like normal action, right? One is he separates it by the fact that it's this sort of visionary experience and it's fairly explicitly visionary. Like he's having allegorical dreams, like about those three beasts on the hillside and everything else, right? Um, before the, you know, before Virgil comes in and he begins his journey. Um, so, yeah, Paul, uh, uh, Bruce says last week Dante was Jesus and this week he's Paul. Well, that, of course, remember, I'm quoting the passage that Dante was alluding to when he was saying, I'm not Aeneas, I'm not Paul, right? So, uh, by, you know, and of course, by denying it, um, you know, by drawing attention to, like, by his like, humble statement, he also draws our attention to the parallels, right? Uh, it kind of indirectly invites us to take Dante and put it next to to Aeneas's journey and Paul's visions, right? Um, but anyway, yeah. So, um, okay. So he... So that is the first thing to remember. First thing to remember, this, it, this doesn't happen. It's a vision, right? Many people, like thousands of people, like possibly generations of people, have basically read the comedy and come away with it saying... So this is what hell's really like, right? This is like uh, pe people like basically reading Inferno as if Dante meant it to be read as like the narrative account of an on-site reporter, right? You know, I come to you live from the first fifth circle of hell where I'm getting splattered by sneaking mud from, oh, it's, it's Filippo Argenti, people. What does he have to say? Like, that's not the narrative mode that he's operating in. And that's my second point. First point is that the first frame of it is visionary. It's, it's, it's a visionary experience, right? The second point uh, is the second, or rather the second framework of the thing is that it's allegory, explicitly allegory from the beginning, right? He's prompting us uh, to interpret it on multiple levels. Um, and normally you throw away the literal level of an allegory. Now, I talked about how he doesn't want us to do that, right? So it's it's not just like a personification allegory where you're chucking out the literal level entirely. But he's managed to go, like, to the opposite extreme, right? Where everyone's looking at what is the literal level of an allegory and saying, like, this is like, you know, again, like a like a like an on-site reporter telling, like, this is, this. He's, he's dishing the real scoop about what hell's actually like, right? No, he's not. It's, that's not what's happening here, right? He's having a vision and he's writing an allegory. Um, and yet, again, the narrative experience is so compelling, right? Uh, is so immediate. Um, there are so many things that he does. I was really interested. I mean, I, 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 commend to you and I you know although I've been saying like don't jump and read the notes right read the notes right away I don't want to discourage you from reading any notes at any time right because there's a lot of useful stuff in the notes and in particular um Berolini's uh commentary in the digital Dante project that I've been directing you towards all along she's so good Berolini might be the greatest living Dantista in the world. Um, she's phenomenal, has been for, I mean, she was phenomenal when I was at Columbia, you know, uh, ages ago. Um, she is now like 
the matriarch of Dante studies. So um, she's fantastic and has some really fascinating things to say. Um, I was particularly interested in her commentary on Canto Nine. Um, when she, the interactions between Dante and Virgil, which, hey, if we're lucky to, we'll even get to today if I actually allow myself to begin discussing the text. But um, but anyway, um, she talks a lot about like the the kind of the kind of narrative techniques that Dante uses to present like the immediacy of the of 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 his perspective, the intern the the internality, uh, both of his own described experience and even of Virgil's experience and. Um, uh, really, really, um, really interesting stuff there. Okay. So, again, my point is he is succeeding in this, in this remarkable way with his narrative level, right? Um, so that he, like, at the same time, like, literally at the same time while we're appreciating different narrative levels we still kind of feel like okay but this is like this is the this is this is the real deal this is like this is what dante saw look he's right he's right there right he's there in the body um what's the point and what does all this have to do with serena's question about why is he so focused on the physical body and physical torments of the shades um i don't think that he is necessarily claiming that this is what hell is like. Again, I get the sense, and I've voiced this a, a couple of times, that it's almost as if this entire thing is a kind of pageant presented for Dante's edification and through Dante our edification, right? There are a couple purposes to this mission, quest, thing that he's been sent on, right? Um, one is his own salvation, we were told at the beginning, right? That's one of the goals here, but he's also transmitting it for us, right? It is also for our edification, and so against, once again, multiple layers, right, of interpretation, but, um, or multiple levels of applicability also, one could say. Um, but again, that's not to, so the point then, my point is, why are the, so I'm coming back around finally, Serena, I hope to answering your question. Why does he emphasize so much the physical body and the sensations and the physical experiences uh, of these shades who are all conspicuously without bodies at this point? Um, well, I think there's uh, obviously many potential answers to that, but I think the primary question is, or the primary answer in my mind to that is because it's for Dante's benefit. It is like, it, it's like it's being translated. Dante himself is still in the body. He is still seeing through a glass darkly. There is much of spiritual things that he does not yet understand and does not see, especially now when he's still in Inferno. He's still only a very small portion of his spiritual journey that's going to culminate at the end of Paradiso. And he's still not going to be perfect then, right? Um, so, I... Th <laughs> okay, so you know, this is going to be a funny and maybe flippant-sounding way of saying this, but I, it's almost... I almost want to say it's like hell... The torments of hell are being dumbed down for Dante's sake, if you see what I mean by that. I don't mean literally dumbed down. But it's like, but 
made suitable, made comprehensible to his experiences, right? And within his framework. Um, even the way in which many of the torments are depicted, um, some of the the kind of thinking that we've been doing already, like, okay, you know, we're we're being invited to sit down and think about, you know, like the people pushing the circles, uh, the stones around the circle as we were, because they are pushing circles around the circle, uh, that we were talking about last week. Um, we did a lot of thinking about, like, what does this suggest about the nature of avarice and, and all that kind of thing. I think that's the point. I think that's what we're supposed to be doing. I think that's what Dante's supposed to be doing. I think that that's the purpose of the pageant. That's the that's the the function of this whole, you know. I don't want to say display as if it's all fake exactly. It's 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 but it could be fictional without being fake uh, in that way. Do you see what I mean? Uh, so that's exactly because we are embodied, Catherine, and da- because Dante is embodied, and we as readers are embodied. That it's being it's being conveyed. If he just went through and saw spiritual beings under purely spiritual torment, what would he see? What could he understand? What would he be able to report? So I went into this one space. And there were creatures who seemed really upset about something, but I couldn't tell what. And then I went somewhere else that looked almost exactly the same and saw different spirits, or at least I think they're different, but I don't really can't really tell how because they don't look like anything because they don't have bodies. And they were also experiencing something. And I got a vague impression that they, what they were experiencing was different from what these other people were experiencing. But I don't know. Right. I mean, so that's um, that kind of seems to me uh a way to understand this. And to me, it's, it, it all like, I've got to go back to the basic frame. Like, what is this thing that we're reading? Right. And it's, if we can resist the narrative pull of the story, resist that the kind of immediacy that, that he's so successful at, at, at developing. And I'm not saying that our job is to resist that at all points. No, like we're supposed to go with it. Right. That's, that's, that's why he did it this way. Um, and by doing that, by going with it, it's like we experience it too. And it becomes uh, sort of emotionally relevant to us in really powerful ways as well. And I think that's, that's part of the point. Right. But when we're asking the question, I think we need to kind of back up from it uh, in that way. So, um, uh, yeah, Mary's talking about myths as transmitters of truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That what he's seeing, I mean, that would be one way to, to, to think of it, Mary. It's like he, what he's seeing is like an enact, is like enacted myths. And of course, now that I come to think of it, he's literally seeing like there are mythological figures all over the place. Like he's in fact going to see myths enacted right before his eyes. Right? We just met. We just met Cerberus for crying out loud. You know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. As uh, Stephen says, myth can be used to portray truth in a way that resonates more than any than more realistic storytelling. Is that is that what's happening here? Yes. And but I would also say, Stephen, it not only resonates uh, more than realistic storytelling; it also resonates a good deal more than just preaching, right? Like just trying to write a treatise about 
the nature of like sin and eternal damnation and the relationship between those things, right? He could have just done that, right? And of course, this is always the counter argument against allegory. Everyone in the Middle Ages who wrote allegory and who wrote instructional stories uh, or allegorical poems, their opponents is, who tend to be, uh, you know, church-based opponents all say, look, what on earth is the point, right? If you're trying to convey a spiritual truth, just say it, right? Just explain it. Preach a good sermon in, or write a good treatise instead of, uh, instead of telling this fancy allegorical story, which maybe they're going to misunderstand and they might miss your point entirely, right? But of course, that is the counter argument that truth resonates in a much different and a much more powerful way uh, within myth or within allegory. Um, yeah, and exactly. Back to Jesus' teaching in parables, Stephen, which, as you might imagine, is one of the very first things that the proponents of allegory were very quick to jump in and say, hey, Jesus did it. We can do it, too. Um, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah, Veronica is saying, so, you know, Dante is seeing like a projection of the thoughts of the spirits, something like that. Again, that's why I keep Veronica wanting to say it, though it, it always feels like it's coming out horribly wrong when I actually say it. But I want to say something like, this is all just sort of like a pageant that's being put on for Dante's benefit. I, I first went here almost accidentally when we were talking about the gates of hell and talking about like the Aristotelian structure of hell and how... Um, it's almost like hell itself was designed for Dante's benefit so that he, when he got his tour, could see through. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, it would be saying a lot to say that, like, when God invented hell, he did it for the sake of Dante Alighieri. Right. But it's uh, it's not so strange in the context of this. Poem. Again, when you remember that it's not only an allegory, but an allegorical vision poem. Right. That um, that. Yeah. What what we are seeing, the pageant that is being unfolded, the vision that is being revealed to Dante is, surprise, surprise, designed for him. Of course it is, right? He's being given the vision, right? Um, this is, in fact, um, uh, uh, explicitly from the beginning, a journey, his journey, a journey for him. Right? And, of course, for him to transmit to others through his poem. But anyway... Um, uh, exactly. This hell was designed for Dante's benefit, Serena, in, in that sense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, but by Dante. <laughs> yes, exactly. As you say. And and that's why. But again, like this is why um, even. Even when people come to Dante and try to take it as like clear evidence of like what medieval Catholics believe about hell, like, mm, you have to be careful, right? That's, I'm not saying that, you know, Dante's just shooting from the hip here entirely. There's certainly precedent for a lot of this stuff, and it's not, he's not off the wall with what he's saying from a doctrinal standpoint most of the time. Um, but again, to kind of take this as, you know, doctrine, right? To take this as just representing either what the medieval church taught, which is always a phrase which kind of makes me <laughs> kind of curl up a little bit, what the medieval church taught, as if that thing is one thing, or the medieval church is one thing. It's it's more complicated than that. But anyway, um, 
nevertheless, uh, yeah, people who view this as like what the medieval church taught about hell, really problematic. Again, they're just complicated, just, just, just complicated. Um, and certainly for people to come to this, you know, people, modern people who kind of come to this and, and feel like they're getting a sense of like, well, this is what like, you know, the average person on the street, like, you know, how they pictured hell. No, this is not how the average person on the street pictured hell. This is how Dante pictured hell, and he is very much not the average person on the street. Now, after this poem, uh, very many of the people on the street probably do picture hell this way, in fact, um, as it, of course, had a massive impact uh, on people's imagination about heaven and hell f- until through to the present. Through to the present. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so that's probably enough preamble. I hope that that helps. I, I, I can't help but feel, Serena, that I've slightly dodged your question, actually, but maybe I haven't. It's not my intention to, but again, I. That's how. I, I guess the last thing I would say about it, I do think that. The, the kind of insight behind your question, Serena, seems to me a very valid one, right? That there's there's a fundamental tension, even a contradiction within this poem to the between the repeated assertions on the one hand that this is a purely spiritual thing. Nobody has bodies here, right? None of this is in that sense real, in a physical sense. And yet everything is described in that way, as if it were physical and all the torments are physical. Um, well, most of them are physical. There are some non-physical torments as well. Um, but anyway, there's a tension, as they say, between those two things. And that seems to me right. I think that that tension exists. Um, but my explanation of that tension would be that it lies in basically Dante as mediator, right? Dante's position, he is consciously mediating between the spiritual realities of the afterlife on the one hand, um, a spiritual truth, you could say, on the one hand, and the material world, the physical world, right? His own physical experience and our experience as readers here in this physical world. And he is the mediator between those two things. And his vision is the vehicle for that. And of course, so how does he do that? How does he mediate between the spiritual and the physical? Allegory. And not just allegory, but allegory of the theologians. The species of allegory that says, take the literal physical and the spiritual and don't throw either one of them out. Keep them both. Right? Look at them both separately and in parallel. And, oh, look, that's exactly what happens with the relationship between the physical and the spiritual. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, Serena, you're right. There's definitely a lot more that we could talk about about this. But you're also right that we should probably move on. All right, let's get back to uh, Canto 8 because we're about to do more of the parts that I don't understand. Uh, so here's one part that I don't understand. What circle are we in? Um, five? Probably. I think it's five. Or maybe it's not yet five. Maybe we're on the edge of five. So one was Limbo. Two was The Lustful. Three was the gluttonous. That was clean sailing, right? That was obvious. Then four was avarice. We definitely descended into the fourth circle of hell, and we got, you know, what's his face, um, uh, Plutus, right? And we got uh, the, the, you know, the avaricious rolling their stones. 
But then we got to the Swamp of Sticks, and we got in the boat. Is that the boundary? Are we in the fifth circle now? Is the fifth circle these wrathful, sullen folks in the swamp like Filippo Argenti? Or or are we still in the fourth circle? Is this a, a sub-area of the fourth circle? And the gate that we're having such a hard time getting through is the boundary to the fifth circle? Or is this the fifth circle, and that's the boundary to the sixth circle? I'm losing my place. And again, I'm, 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 I'm kind of asking for correction, but kind of not asking for correction. Um, I'm, um, uh, that is, my point is, the narrative is not really clear on this. There are some very clear boundaries, like the Swamp of Sticks. They have to wait and get into a boat. They have to step into a boat and proceed on by boat. That's a boundary, right? Um, but is it, is it a between levels boundary? I'm not sure. There's this gate. There's a wall, right? And a gate that they have to pass through. That's a big old boundary, a very clear boundary, a uniquely clear. I mean, this is the clearest boundary we've had since we entered hell in the first place. But again, I think we're in a different place on the other side of that. Probably. Definitely a different set of sinners, and they don't seem to be, you know, I was talking about how the, 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 I think that he's making a spiritual point by having the boundaries between the avaricious and the wrathful uh, so um, dubious, right? So uncertain, so squishy. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Mary says it reminds me of how dreams work, shifting and changing. Yeah. Except like it's not the narrative experience, right? Like except when Dante swoons and wakes up again, right? His own experience is continuous and 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 but it's almost like hell itself, like the 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 actual landscape itself is kind of not again, not like changing as they're going through it um, exactly. But um, but yeah, again, it's it's just uh is not clearly demarcated. Um, David, that's a really good point. David points out that the presence of Filippo Argenti, I don't know why I'm stuttering on Filippo Argenti's name almost every time I say it tonight, but anyway, the presence of Filippo Argenti implies that these guys are still avaricious. But then why is the torment different? Yes, I agree. I mean, the, the avaricious folks rolling their stones are clearly angry, right? And Filippo Argenti, who is definitely angry, and among the angry, and he's gnawing on his own self, um is also clearly avaricious, or was clearly avaricious. I mean, his name recalls his avariciousness. That's what he's famous for, was his avarice. Um, avarice, I suppose, not avariciousness, technically. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Joe, I don't know if it means that these sins are harder to differentiate from each other, or that he's just kind of making a different kind of point about that. I can't help but notice, Joe, that... The two things happened at the same time. That is, we deviated from the seven deadlies, right? Lust, gluttony, then what, right? I mean, there's an obvious answer, right? I mean, he has set up the fourth circle of hell, obviously, should be sloth. Sloth. It should be sloth, right? That's the third of the sins of the flesh. No brainer, right? And so at the same time, Joe, that he disappoints us there, right? That he surprises us with avarice instead of sloth. At the same time that he deviates from the seven deadlies, from the, like, the march of the seven deadly sins, he also begins to 
blur the lines, right? Um, and we get wrath and avarice with a sprinkling of sloth uh, uh, on top, right, uh, in this circle. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, is it possible to be avaricious without being either a miser or a prodigal? It's a really interesting question, Stephen. Asking for a friend? Um, sorry, just teasing. <laughs> Aren't there many sins I would make that kind of joke about in this class, actually? But uh, it's interesting that I feel comfortable making that one. Anyway, um, uh, no, I mean, it is a really good question. Um, is he trying to say that all avarice essentially boils down to one or the other, right? You know, avarice is a distempered relationship with money. Right, a uh, 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 an, an inappropriate, an imbalanced relationship with money, and it doesn't matter which direction you're balanced. Right, um, uh, yeah, um, well, the one thing I would say most clearly is that's exactly the kind of question I think we're supposed to be asking. I think that's exactly the kind of question that he invites, right? Um, about the nature of these sins, right? Like, you know, when we were trying to figure out what sin was in the third circle, right? Um, it prompts us to begin to, th you know, how is this appropriate? What sin is this pointing to? And it points us to it helps us to learn things about the nature of gluttony, right? So to here, I think, in, in thinking about that, I don't think it is possible. I think if you're avaricious, you're going to be one of the two. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to be, like, one of the two extremes, right? I mean, you don't have to be the prodigal son from the parable on the one hand or Ebenezer Scrooge on the other hand, right? Um, you're, you know, Silas Martyr, you know, Pick a miser, I guess. Um, you don't. You don't have to be on the extreme of those particular scales, um, but that. Um, I mean, I guess I would ask another question in return. In what other way can you have an inappropriate relationship with money if it doesn't involve either saving it or spending it? Right. I mean, how else? would a distempered relationship with money be expressed if not through hoarding or saving or th hoarding or spending rather um <clears throat> yeah envying it yeah but see that would be envy not avarice um and it's a sort of a subtle difference right but it is an important difference um avarice is about your relationship with money the mere desire for wealth or the envy of people who have wealth. You know, if you're seeing somebody in their nice car that you can't afford and you're kind of hating them a little bit or maybe more than a little bit, right, because they have what you don't have, you're not experiencing avarice. It's not avarice. That's envy. That's envy. Your feeling towards that person is envy. Now, your feeling towards the car might be avarice, uh, but I, it's, it's that's that's. But envy is different, and it affects you differently than avarice. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Mm, Sylvia says power. Hmm. But see, Sylvia, I would say that that's the same, a similar kind of thing. Um, as if you have money, there are other temptations besides avarice that you will be opened to, right? Um, envy, of course, is one, uh, famously, right? Uh, you have money, what happens? You want more money, right? Um, and just because you're rich doesn't mean you cease to be envious of other folks who are richer. Um, that's well known. Uh, but, um, uh, but apart from that, there are other, there, there, there are other sins in addition that the state of being rich might open you up to that aren't themselves necessarily avarice. Um, and the temptation to abuse power, um, is, I would say a, a different I don't, that's not ex itself avarice, though it is, again, a, a, a temptation that wealth would open you up to. Um, yes, you are correct, Carrie, that uh, simony will we'll come to simony later on. Uh, simony is a money-related sin. We're going to come to several other money-related sins that are going to—the people and the people who are being punished for those sins are somewhere else other than the sin of avarice. Um so, yes, that is certainly true. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, let's see. What about another way to go the wrong way with money is to be excessively charitable to the point that you can't afford your own physical needs? Nope. Nothing wrong with that. Ask St. Francis, right? St. Francis of Assisi would say, not possible to err in that direction. You cannot neglect your own needs too much in the meeting of the needs of others. Um, and this, again, is where the Aristotelian system breaks down in the Christian world, um, is that the Christian, although in some things the Christian teaching is all for the mean between extremes. Um, there are many things, both good and bad, which uh, Christian doctrine says it is, th there is no golden mean. Like charity, and charity is one. Like you, you're, not, you're not meant to be, you know, just a little bit generous, but not too much. Uh, you're not meant to be... Uh, just a little bit uh, lascivious and not too much. You're supposed to be not lascivious at all. You're supposed to be charitable completely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what is simony? Ah, simony uh, is... Uh, 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 talk about your sins nobody gets accused of anymore. <laughs> it's not much. Uh uh, you'll rarely get publicly shamed for the sin of simony. 
these days. Simony is taking money in exchange for spiritual benefits. This was a big deal in the Middle Ages. <laughs> this was a frequently tossed about accusation in the Middle Ages. It is named after Simon Magus in the Book of Acts, who, upon seeing the apostles uh, lay hands on people and the Holy Spirit entered them and they manifested the gifts of the Holy Spirit, he offered them money to teach him how to do that. Um, because he thought that was awesome. Um, and uh, Peter uh, condemned him for that, saying, your money perish with you, with thee, for the, you think that you can buy the things of the Spirit. Um, so that sin is called the sin of simony uh, in honor of Simon Magus. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Stephen, exactly. Nobody's going. Nobody's going to Mount Purgatory to purge their excess generosity. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Not going to happen. Not a sin. Not a sin. It might be inconvenient. It might lead to your premature death. You might starve to death because you've given away all your money. That's not a sin. That's not a sin. It'll shorten your life, but it's it's not a sin. It's not a sin. Um, okay. Um, I am now going to start talking about the text. Let's get back into it. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Okay. The kindly master said, My son, the city that bears the name of Dis is drawing near, with its grave citizens. I like to think that Mandelbaum did not mean that as a pun, but I can't help but hear it. Its great battalions. I said, I can already see distinctly, master, the mosques that gleam within the valley as crimson as if they had just been drawn out of the fire. He told me, The eternal flame burning there appears to make them red, as you can see, within this lower hell. So we arrived inside the deep-cut trenches that are the moats of this despondent land. The ramparts seemed to me to be of iron. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys are awesome. Um, again, you, you guys with your questions. This is this is I, I medieval uh, medieval theologians would have loved your questions, uh, and um, you will see. Like if you read something like uh, um, Aquinas's Summa Theologica, you will see that it's like written exactly to anticipate and address many of these kinds of questions. So Julie was just asking, what about if you're generous to a bad cause? <laughs> you give you give all of your money generously to a horrible cause supporting something terrible. Um, the generosity is still not bad, qua generosity, right? But uh, your desire to support the bad cause is probably a bad thing. There's probably some bad thing leading to you. It's, there's there's probably a sinful desire uh, or something that is leading, or at least an error that is leading you to support the bad cause. But the generosity in itself is not um, is not bad. Um, yes. Now, Stephen, uh, uh, I was just going to mention that. Um, yes, the Italian, the original Italian, does in fact specify mosques. Um, the word, the Italian word that he uses there is uh, uh, like towers from Islamic uh, places of worship. Yes, that is the word that he uses there. I'm forgetting the Italian word, but but yes, 
it is. Um, I actually, Stephen, checked that in Berlini uh, beforehand to, 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 to double check because I was curious about the same thing. I mean, I was, you know, willing to trust Mandelbaum there, but uh, uh, but I wanted to double check and Berlini confirmed that. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Um, Well, oh yeah, okay. So, the wall. So you remember he, they faced face a tower, right? And the tower was signaling to another tower, and we've come to the wall uh, that the towers are in. And there's this, so there's this iron wall, and there's a gate in the iron wall. I've never understood this. I have never understood the city of Dees. Is 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 it all around? Like, do the walls of Dees go all the way around? Um, the whole circumference. I mean, hell is concentric circles. Does it go all the way around? Is it like a city that like guards this waypoint? And so it's like a smaller city, but like tactically situated? Is is that the situation? Why is it the city of Dece? Dece is one of the Roman names for the god of death, like Pluto, um, whom we've already kind of met, except it's not him, it's another guy. Um the god of the underworld, kind of, but we never meet Dees, and it's not clear the significance of Dees, or why he should have a city, and why it should have gates, and why there are gates here, between the fifth and sixth circles, unless it's the fourth and fifth circles, but I think it's probably the fifth and sixth, maybe. Um, I don't know. I just, I've never get, I've never gotten this. I, I, I feel to me, uh, the city of Dees is still, uh, a mystery. Um, yeah. Um, Stephen says, uh, I think Lewis referred to Islam as a Christian heresy. Would the medieval Catholics have thought so? No. They wouldn't have talked about it that way. No. Um, uh, no. Heresy, yes. Um, a Christian heresy, like a, a some in some sense, a subset of Christianity? No. They would not have seen it that way. Um, in some medieval poems, for instance, they depict in their desire, like the thing they're trying to convey is that the Muslims are heretics and what they believe is very wrong and very bad. Um, and so in an attempt to depict that, they will depict the Muslims as worshiping idols right, as idolaters, right, which, of course, <laughs> differs from Christianity in exactly the opposite direction of how Islam actually differs from Christianity, right? I mean, it's like, it's like completely in the, uh, it, it betrays either a profound ignorance about the actual tenets of Islam or, and or, a, an utter indifference in the actual tenets of Islam, right? It's, uh, so, um, so yeah, like, it, again, especially in literature, um, uh, Muslims uh, and Islam are generally just depicted as um, heretics, just, you know, infidels, infidels and heretics. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so it's they definitely didn't see it as a as a they didn't see it as a subset in that way. We'll get to Muhammad, Bruce. Yeah, we'll get to Muhammad. Um. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is this is well after the Crusades had begun, Carrie. Yeah. Um. Uh, not to mention the Muslim incursions. So yeah, yeah. No, I mean the Muslims are are definitely have been a military concern for some time. Uh, by this point, yeah, absolutely. Um. Yep. Um, okay. One thing, <laughs> here I'm like looking at this passage and like this whole canto really, and I'm trying to extract the, I'm, I'm trying to, since I, as I say, I don't feel that I get it. Um, I'm trying to grasp at like whatever piece of flotsam comes my way uh, here. That is to say, like, let me uh, let me review the things that I feel like I do understand from this. Right. Well, OK, so here's one within this lower hell. OK, so we're there's a vantage point here. Right. The other on the other side of this city, things are going to descend. He's talking about a lower hell and that things are different. Right. We're seeing eternal flame burning down there. Now, notice we've been through a number of circles of hell and we have yet to encounter eternal flames burning, right? Which, of course, most people would have expected to meet fairly early on in the process, right? So we're still, uh, we're still pretty far uh, from uh, uh, actually encountering anybody burning in eternal flames, but it looks like we're getting there, right? So that there, and, and that that is, that there's a, a, a more significant demarcation here, right? That there is a lower hell, um, and in that lower hell, we have A, flames burning, and B, mosques down in the valley, right? Um, so, okay, yeah. Um, I don't yet understand the significance of that. Like, what makes the lower hell different from the upper hell? That's one of the things that's going to be interesting to see. But the fact that there does seem to be... And the, again, the, the gates seem to me... We've seen cliffs in other places. They had to scale down to the fourth circle, right? Remember by Plutus, who was yelling at him uh, and stuff. Um, there have been other very clear phys- you know, geographical demarcations. Um, but the wall and the gate especially given that they get turned back at the gate, right? I mean, there's, there's, this is a problem getting through this gate. Um, really draws attention to the fact that this, this seems to be a more significant boundary, in a sense. Like, this is, uh, this is the boundary between whole kind of broader sectors of hell in some way. Um, though, again, I'm not 100% sure yet what that is, but let's see if we can, we can kind of figure that out. Um, I'm interested in the phrase, the moats of this despondent land. Despondent is interesting, right? Despondent means without hope, right? Um, That's what happens if you are uh, despondent. That's what you are if you are desponding. if, uh, if you sink into the slew of despond uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, that means you are going to give up. Um, yeah. 
Well, Bruce, that's yeah. We'll come back to that. Remind me about that because that sounds like a good theory. But we haven't. We can't really talk about that yet because we haven't gotten there yet. But I I, I like the way you're thinking there. Um. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The most important function of the wall and the gate is that it's going to be broken in by an angelic being, right? To enable Dante to go through. But I would argue that the second most important thing about the gate is that Dante and Virgil fail to get through on their own, right? Well, let's let's keep reading. About the gates I saw more than a thousand who once had reigned from heaven, and they cried in anger, Who is this who without death can journey through the kingdom of the dead? And my wise master made a sign that said he wanted to speak secretly to them. I always wonder what that sign was. What's hand what's Virgilian hand gesture for I want to speak secretly to you? Then they suppressed somewhat their great disdain and said, You come alone. Let him be gone, for he was reckless entering this realm. Let him return alone on his mad road, or try to if he can, since you, his guide, across so dark a land, you are to stay. Consider, reader, my dismay before the sound of those abominable words. Returning here seemed so impossible. That is, returning here, returning to our world, returning out of the world of the damned on his own by himself retracing his steps. Um, so these are demons. We're told that they're demons. We know this because we were told that they had once had reigned from heaven, uh, right? And it was the fallen angels who fell with Satan who fell literally, right? Uh, uh, Raining down from heaven. Um, So the demons are there. There's a thousand demons at the gates, and they're angry. Um, And they're angry and, what, like outraged against Dante's presence. Who is this who without death can journey through the kingdom of the dead? Who is this guy and where does he get off, right? Trying to get a tour of hell while he's still alive. Virgil responds... Right? Um, they tell him to come alone and they tell Dante to go home. Right? The demons are messing with them from the beginning. Right? They are trying to stand up to both of them. They're telling Virgil, we're taking you into custody. And they're saying to Dante, you've got to find your own way home if you can. Um... Yeah, so, Serena, these <clears throat> these are definitely rebel angels. These are definitely demons. Um, is this the job they're assigned guarding this gate? No. No, it's not. This is an act of rebellion. Um, we know this has been sanctioned, right? I mean, Dante's, Dante's field trip has the official sanction of heaven, right? It comes straight from the top, Right? from the Virgin Mary through St. Blanking. Oh. Who is the saint who gives it to... Uh, big, uh, Lucia! Oh, thank you. 
totally blanked on that. Yeah. Come straight from the top, as I was saying. Straight from the Virgin Mary to St. Lucia to Beatrice through Virgil, right? That's like straight from the top. Um, his authority uh, for this trip. They have no authority to stand against that authority, right? Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, Jennifer, the, uh, as you say, official sanction is not enough on its own. Or it wouldn't seem to be, right? Um, or at least they're trying to... Um, they are trying to convince them, right? Uh, if you believed them, if you were Dante or Virgil, and you believed the demons that you... Virgil had to stay and Dante couldn't go for it anymore. You know, the gates are shut. Sorry, no, you're not coming through. Um, can't happen. If you were to believe that and just trundle on home, if, assuming you could trundle on home, um, what would you be? Despondent is what you would be, right? Um, you would be giving up hope. Um, so that they probably shouldn't do that. Um, anyway, so... Dante's a little alarmed, but fortunately he's with Virgil, and Virgil's got this. Virgil's got this. These were my words. The Lord who'd led me there replied, Forget your fear. No one can hinder our passage. One so great has granted it. But you wait here for me, and feed and comfort your tired spirit with good hope, for I will not abandon you in this low world. So he goes on his way. That gentle father has left me there to wait and hesitate, for yes and no contend within my head. Dante has doubts. Are we going to be able to get through? Right. Yes, I believe we will get through. No, I'm not sure we will get through. Right. But there he is, waiting and hesitating, for yes and no contend within my head. I could not hear what he was telling them, but he had not been long, but he had not been long with them when each ran back into the city, scrambling fast. And these, our adversaries, slammed the gates in my lord's face, and he remained outside. Then, with slow steps, he turned back again to me. Okay, now, I will admit that, as I say, I've always been confused about this. Um, I've always been confused um, because... What I mean by confused, okay, I'm confused about a lot of things with this, but what I mean is I always have the wrong response to this, or rather what the text seems to suggest is the wrong response. I could not hear what he was telling them, but he had not been long with them when each ran back into the city scrambling fast. What just happened? Well, that seems good. I mean, they were just talking a big game. Right? They were like, you, buddy, you got to stay here. You come here, and we're going to keep you in custody, and he's going home. Forget about it. Right? That's what they just said. And now he comes up, and he leans in, and he whispers a few words to them. And when he just whispers these words to them, they all jump up and go running back into the city, scrambling fast. I, I kind of picture them like, you know, cartoon characters, um, you know with their, like, legs wheeling in circles and, and uh, you know, scrambling all over each other to rush back into the... back in through the gate. Um, 
that seemed effective, whatever Virgil did. He stood up to them, right? He chased them right off. They were, they're not talking so big anymore. And they're certainly not keeping him in custody. That's for sure. But then they slammed the door in his face, which seems to be not what he was going for. And then he turns back with slow steps. And it turns out he's not triumphant. His eyes turned to the ground, his brows deprived of every confidence. He said with sighs, See who has kept me from the house of sorrow. To me, he added, You, though I am vexed, must not be daunted. I shall win this contest, whoever tries within to block our way. This insolence of theirs is nothing new. They used it once before, and at a gate less secret. It is still without its bolts, the place where you made out the fatal text. And now already within that gate, across the circles, and alone, descends the one who will unlock this realm for us. He's vexed. You, though I am vexed, must not be daunted. I shall win this contest, whoever tries within to block our way. But his body language betrays him. We can see how he really feels. His eyes are turned to the ground, his brows deprived of every confidence, and he's saying this with sighs. Virgil's failed. He tried to get through, he went up to them and, and declared his mission or whatever it was that he said secretly to the demons. And they ran, but they slammed the gate in his face and he can't get through. Virgil can't open the gate. There's nothing he can do. They're stuck. They're stuck here. Now, are they stuck permanently? No, no. The cavalry's coming. Reinforcements are on the way. And he predicts that. Um, one who will unlock this realm for us is descending. Is on his way, right? I um, I sort of imagine now, you know, like um, kind of like a like a an Uber or Lyft map, right? Where they're kind of looking at their phones to watch the progress of the, uh, of the, uh, you know, the one who will unlock the realm approaching uh, through the different circles of hell that they've been through. Oh, yeah, he's passing through Gluttony now. We'll be here in seven minutes. Um, He compares this to the harrowing of hell, right? The demons rebelled. Rebelling is, this is what, they, somebody was saying this before. Yeah, Sylvia was saying that demons rebel against authority. Yeah, it's what they do, right? Um, they did this at the harrowing of hell, too. When Jesus descends into hell to bring the uh, the righteous dead up to paradise with him um, on Holy Saturday, they try to resist him, too. Um, they tried to hold the gates of hell against him, but they failed to hold the gates of hell against him. And those that that gate is still without its bolts. It can't be locked anymore. Um, the gate of hell is unbolted permanently. It cannot be locked from the inside anymore. Um, this, by the way, was everybody's favorite scene. I think that's safe to say. Everybody's favorite scene in the mystery plays. The uh, the medieval pageant dramas that did, like, Bible stories, right? Um, everybody loves the Harrowing of Hell play. The Harrowing of Hell play is super fun. Uh, uh, and the most fun parts, um, uh, the most fun roles in the Harrowing of Hell plays are the demons. Uh, you get people playing the—the de- uh, the, the scene usually— um, 
the uh, the curtain rises. Not that there was a curtain. Uh, but anyway, the scene begins with demons on the like battlements of hell's wall. Right. Uh, and they they're talking about, you know, and they're they're kind of you know, so they have some banter at the beginning, you know, about their situation and and, and how awful it is. And then they see Jesus coming. In the di- in the distance, and they're looking, and they're like, "Do you see something? What's that? Oh no!" And then they start running around and scampering, and they're like, "You stop him! No, you stop him! Like, no, we've got to hold the gates! No, it's not going to work!" And then, boom! Jesus kicks the gates in, and all the demons scurry around and run, and the and then the children laugh. Um, hilarious, hilarious! Even better than Herod, Jennifer. Oh yeah, even better than Herod. Um, Herod was a favorite part because he's like completely evil. Uh, I mean, that's how he was depicted in the in the in the in, in the plays, right? Like the guy who kills children apparently for fun, um, and so they would really do it up, and he would be uh, uh, he would be uh, uh, extremely wicked. So that was a, certainly a very fun part to play. Um, but uh, but oh no, these were th- th- this was even better. Um, okay, um, okay. See, Bruce, that is exactly a question I have no answer to. Um, is this the fortified bit on this level, or does it include everything inside down to Satan and the ice below? That is, like, is is all of the lower hell this, essentially? That, yeah, that's exactly what I don't know. Okay, that's among the things that I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. It's not going to be referred to as this after this. This seems to be just like these gates and the city here, I guess. But it's called a city. But like once they get through the gates, then you're just inside. So I guess it is. But they don't talk about it that way. As I say, I don't get it. Um, um, so. Anyway, OK. Um, Virgil's failure. Virgil's failure, and he feels pretty bad about it. It is possible to read this in other ways, but I do think Virgil is Virgil's feeling bad. Virgil was just like, you hang on, I'll take care of this. And then he goes to take care, and he fails to take care of it. He's got to call in reinforcements. He can't do it. The next passage is the one that leads me to believe that that's the correct way of reading this passage. The color cowardice displayed in me when I saw that my guide was driven back made him more quickly mask his own new pallor. So paleness, the paleness of fear, shows displays itself in Dante. Notice the impersonality of that here, right? He is... Um, the pallor of fear displays itself in him, right? It's a very indirect way to talk about his own feelings, right? Um, But he does this in order to balance it against the pallor of Virgil himself. Um, His own fear at seeing Virgil fail, Virgil driven back from the gate, has an effect on Virgil, and that is to make him mask his own fear. He was feeling it too. He was pale with fear when he comes back from the gate. But he tries to mask that when he sees how afraid Dante is. 
He stood alert, like an attentive listener, because his eye could hardly journey far across the back, the black air and the heavy fog. They're looking out for the reinforcements, right? But they can't be, like, searching because it's foggy and the air is black. can't see anything, right? So it's not going to do you much good. So, what, what, so he's listening, right? Listening for any evidence of the coming of the one that they're waiting for. Presumably, his standing alert, like an attentive listener, is in order to reassure Dante, right? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Help's a-coming. It's not a disaster. It's not a disaster. We have to win this battle, he began. If not, but one so great had offered help. How slow that someone's coming seems to me. Virgil almost entertains the idea that they lose. We have to win this battle. If not, if not what? What does happen if they don't win? If they can't get through? If the demons win and prevent them passing through the gate, they have to go back? Does he just lead them back? Can he do that? Is that going to work? I mean, is it going to work? It's not It's not like they've been given a, like, a free, all, you know, like all-access backstage pass to hell, right? They've been sent on a journey. That doesn't necessarily mean that backtracking is okay, right? Um, uh, you know, once you're on the ride, you kind of have to stay on the ride until the end. Um, uh, so it's unclear what would happen, right? And he seems to not want to... Certainly, maybe he doesn't want to think about it. He certainly doesn't want to talk about the if, right, about what could happen if they don't win, right? But there's, there's, I think, very plain doubt. <laughs> yes, uh, all hell will be in disarray. Yes, more, 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 more or less, <laughs> Carrie. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, would Dante get stuck? Exactly. Um, a question to be asked. Certainly Dante's thinking about that, right? Dante's thinking about that. Would Dante get stuck? Huh. Hang on, let's just pause for a second. What would Dante getting stuck look like? What would Dante getting stuck look like? If he had to stay here, can't go further, gate's locked. Can't go back. They weren't sent on a round trip sent on a one-way trip and they failed so gotta stay where's he what's he gonna what's he gonna end up doing what's he gonna end up doing where is he um he's hanging still near Filippo Argenti right what's everybody else doing down there answer Beating up Filippo Argenti, right? Remember, that's what we saw. The last time we saw Filippo Argenti was everybody else pounding on him, right? Which is exactly what Dante wanted to do. And which Virgil commended him for, right? That's interesting. We were noticing last week that Dante seems to be more in sympathy, I would add more alarmingly in sympathy with the sin of the sinners in this circle, which soever circle it might be, um, 
than he has with any others, even the lustful, right? Even when he swooned the two other times, he was not in um, uh, such close sympathy with the attitudes of the sinners by whom he was surrounded, right? And yet we saw him very much in sympathy with the folks who were beating up Filippo Argenti um, and expressing the opposite of pity for him, right? Um, I don't know about you, but I was kind of expecting to pass out any time there, right? Uh, that's the pattern that we'd seen before and we didn't get it there. He didn't pass out in this circle which it kind of seems like he he might have done, right? Like he might have done. Um, and yeah, Stephen, I agree. Here he's not only that's cool, but he's an active participant. Yes, yes, pretty close. Um, yeah, Jennifer says, tears indicate one level of sympathy, swooning another participation, a much greater one. Yes, yes. Um, uh yeah. Now, I mean, he's not dead, of course, Michael, as you're pointing out, and he's not been, I mean, you know, Minus didn't send him here, so presumably, I guess there'd still be a process. I mean, if he did die here, he would, I mean, I guess if he stayed here eventually, he would starve to death, I guess, and then die of thirst or whatever, and then, what, his shade would pop back up to the first circle visit Minos and then get sent, assuming that he didn't make it to Purgatory, of course. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think um, it just seems to me interesting that this crisis, and it really is the greatest crisis of its kind on Dante's entire journey. Um, there is not going to be another point in the trip through hell in which they're going to confront an obstacle which it looks temporarily like they just can't get over. I mean, it looks like the whole the whole the deal's off, right? The vision is done. Um, Dante's gonna fail to get through. Given that the order from on high was given not only for his benefit but for his edification, right? Um, it makes me wonder. I can't help but think that the two things are correlated. First of all, I can't help but think that I always am bothered by his wrath in the in the in the swamp of the wrathful. I always feel like I'm bothered about that more than most other commentaries. I mean, whenever I'm reading other people writing about this, I'm always like, why are we not talking about what seems to me the most screamingly obvious thing, which is that he is venting unrepentant wrath in the circle of the wrathful, uh, and Virgil is giving him a big, huge attaboy for doing that. And in fact, Virgil does exactly what the other sinners do. He kicks Filippo Argenti, which is what a bunch of other people do, right? Uh, of the, you know, the other damn shades there. Um, but anyway... So maybe it's just me. I don't know. But I, I anyway, I, I can't. I can't. I can't pass that over. And then it seems, it just, it just seems to me pretty conspicuous. Pretty conspicuous. Because, of course, there's the correlation with Virgil, too. Not only does it look like Dante might end up having to stay permanently in a place where, to be totally blunt, um, 
it looks like he kind of belongs, or at least the way that he was acting suggested he would not be out of place here, right? Um, now, again, that's harsh, and, you know, hopefully he can find grace, but, um, uh, but you know, I'm just saying, right? He, he just looked like he fit in. That's what I'm saying. Um, not only that, not only that, but right after we were just discussing at the end of last time that Virgil looks unreliable for the first time in the whole story, right? Just when we were expecting a wise rebuke from Virgil, we got this bizarre, you know, affirmation of Dante acting just like the sinners that surround him and appearing utterly to miss the point, whatever point he was supposed to be getting from that particular stage of his trip, that particular stage of his visit. Um, so here, so Vir, Virgil proves himself unreliable and then immediately proves himself powerless. He can't, right? He can't. He can't open the gates. And he doesn't seem to be steering Dante right 100% of the time either. Um, yeah, Bruce is wondering if Dante is commenting on his own besetting sin. It's possible. It's possible. Is this a kind of a humble move? Is in in its way right? I mean, is he setting him like setting himself up to like setting us up to draw these conclusions about him? Basically, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Michael's wondering if it could be a warning to Dante not to take Virgil as a true teacher and remember to keep him only as a guide. Well, certainly what it absolutely does, what it unquestionably does, this business at the gate, um, is to undermine Virgil, right? He is not the will of all good sense. He is not, um, he's not omnicompetent. He doesn't always know what he's doing, um... And he can't do all things. He does not have the keys to the gate. When the demons slam the door in his face, he is helpless by himself to do anything. Um, notice Dante's reaction. But I saw well enough how he had covered his first words with the words that followed after. I noticed that if-not thing in there, right? We have to win this battle if not. But one so great had offered help. I saw well enough how he had covered his first words with the words that followed after, so different from what he had said before. Nevertheless, his speech made me afraid, because I drew out from his broken phrase a meaning worse, perhaps, than he'd intended. This is Virgil failing again. Remember from the very beginning, from the first uh, uh, terza there? Um, what was he doing? He was trying to instill confidence, right? He sees that Dante is afraid, and so he masks his own pallor in order to try to encourage him. And then he opens up his mouth to encourage him to reassure him further and undermines it. We have to win this battle. If not, uh, no, but, but I'm sure we will. And the result... He has failed a third time. He failed to correct Dante. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and call that a failure. He failed to correct Dante with Filippo Argenti. He fails to get through the gates. And now he fails even to reassure Dante from his fear. And then 
Um, and then things get weirder. And then the Furies show up on the walls. Furies show up on the walls and they threaten to go get Medusa, which will turn Dante into stone. That'll that'll take care of him right there. Right? But, oh, well, sorry. I forgot about this passage. Before we get to the Furies and Medusa. Uh, talk about your passages I don't understand. But anyway, before we get there, um, Virgil explains his on-the-job experience. Does anyone from the first circle, Dante asks, does anyone from the first circle, one whose only punishment is crippled hope, ever descend so deep in this sad hollow? That was my question. And he answered so. It is quite rare for one of us to go along the way that I have taken now. But I, in truth, have been here once before. Okay, so pause for a second. Do uh, do people in limbo normally get to go on, you know, mini breaks down to other bits, parts of hell? Is there is there is there a lot of tourism, right, from limbo down to here? Um, and again, one of the, the implications of the question is like you you did know this was here, right? You've gotten through this gate before, right? I mean, Dante sounds here a little bit like um. Like, uh, you know, Mary Pippin and Boromir at the gates of Moria, right? To Gandalf. Um, uh, like, how did you come through here before if you don't know how to open the gates? Um, that kind of seems to be a, a, a little bit of, you know, like, what kind of a guide are you anyway, right? If you, you don't even have the passcode to get in here. Um, um. <laughs> That's good, Stephen. Stephen says, or to sum up, those in limbo, how low can they go? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, so, okay. So he gives a reassurance, right? He can give a reassuring answer to this question, too. Uh, okay, truth to tell, no, doesn't happen a lot. Um Again, they don't get to go, David. They don't get to go on safari, right? Uh, down in the rest of hell. That's that's not normal. But I've been here, right? So I am more qualified than like anybody else in limbo to do this. So that's very brilliant. Okay, so you you have you're not just winging it here, Virgil. You you do know what you're talking about. That's great. And of course, of course, Virgil knows what he's talking about, right? Because I mean, you know, he wrote the Aeneid. He wrote Aeneid six. Of course, he knows what he's talking about. That's is that how we learned it? Was he allowed to go down and visit because of, you know, what he wrote? No. Turns out, no. That savage witch, Erichtho, she who called the shades back to their bodies, summoned me. My flesh had not long been stripped off when she had me descend through all the rings of hell to draw a spirit back from Judas's circle. That is the deepest and the darkest place, the furthest from the heaven that girds all. So rest assured, I know the pathway well. This swamp that breathes and breathes the giant stench surrounds the city of the sorrowing, which we cannot enter without anger. First of all, you can't enter it without anger? Are you sure, Virgil, that anger wasn't your problem in the first place? Or your commendation of anger? We can't enter it without anger. Um, 
what, getting angry? Like, we can't enter it without irritation? Uh, yeah, so Tomas, exactly. So, Eric, though. Eric, though, is a necromancer. She's a witch. A savage witch, in fact, we're told. Eric, though, is a character from the poem Pharsalia by Lucan. Uh, Lucan is the guy who got left out. Or, well, no, no, sorry. Sorry, he was there. Lucan was up in the first circle. He wasn't the one that was left out. It was uh, the other one. What's his face? Beginning of the day. Um, oh, darn it. Virgil, Ovid... Oh, no, it's the A. Statius. Statius is the one I'm thinking of. Okay, sorry. Statius was the one that got left out. Uh, Lucan was there. Lucan was there, so we had we had Homer, and we had uh, we had Ovid, and we had Horus, and we had Lucan we, the, uh, up, in, uh, up in Limbo uh, just before. Lucan's most famous poem was uh, Farsal- called Pharsalia, with a P-H, uh, Pharsalia. Um, it was about the Civil War, the uh, uh, Pompey and Caesar Civil War. Um, epic poem, uh, like the third best epic poem in Latin, in the Latin tradition. Obviously, Aeneid is number one. Um, Statius's Thebiad is number two. Uh, Lucan's Pharsalia, number three. And Eric, though, is a character in that poem, and she's a witch. She's kind of for Bible fans, she's kind of like the Witch of Endor. And what she does is kind of like what the Witch of Endor does uh, in the Old Testament. That is, she conjures up the souls of dead folks to give information. She's a necromancer. Um, so she conjures up the souls of dead folks to give information. So how does Virgil know the way? What was his on-the-job experience? His on-the-job experience was, so he got conjured by Erichtho the Savage Witch. Now, I'm not going to lie, that doesn't look awesome on your resume. It really doesn't, right? That's not what I would have led with, I think, if I'd been Virgil, right? Um, Getting bossed around, getting ordered around, by a very morally dubious, I mean, even in the original poem, morally dubious, um, which Erichtho, I'd say, I could, that is to say, Erichtho is not just morally dubious from a Christian standpoint. She was very morally dubious from a Roman standpoint within the poem. Uh, that was very clear. Uh, so, had his shade been conjured up, Right. So had she conjured up his his shade and forced him to reveal truths to whoever it was that was consulting her. And it was Pompey. If I'm remembering correctly, it was Pompey who consulted her um, before the battle that leads to his death um, or that leads to his defeat. Anyway, Um, so, um, uh, yeah, exactly. Carita, you're thinking precisely the same thing I'm saying now. uh, Getting conjured up by a necromancer and forced to give information is not the greatest look in the world. But at the same time, it's not the worst either, right? Um, besides Carita, anybody else remember who the Witch of Endor in the Old Testament summons up? There's, I mean, there is this biblical example of this same phenomenon, right? Who does the Witch of Endor whistle up? Samuel! Yeah, the prophet Samuel, right? Exactly. Exactly. The prophet Samuel gets whistled up uh, by the witch of Endor. So, you know, 
like, and Samuel was a was a solid dude, right? I mean, it's that that doesn't speak ill of Samuel, you know, that his shade got summoned by the Witch of Endor. So I guess it would be okay if Virgil's shade got summoned up. In fact, if anything, you could even kind of bring it around to say it's like the pagan parallel to Samuel, right? So, okay, that's cool. Except, wait, is that what happened with Erichtho? Did she summon him in order to give information? What is he... What is he... Read that carefully. What does he say happened? That savage witch Erichtho, she who called the shades back to their bodies, summoned me. My flesh had not long been stripped off when she had me descend through all the rings of hell to draw a spirit back from Judas's circle. Yeah, he was just the lackey. He didn't even get summoned to give information. Somebody else was getting summoned to give information. He got sent to fetch the person who was to give information. Right? Somebody who was down in the ninth circle of hell. Down in Judas's circle. The deep dark place. Right? Um, and he, Virgil, of course, is up in limbo. And that's why he's been down all the way to the bottom before. Because he went before on Erichtho's business. So, he's saying to Dante, so don't worry, this is the second time that a supernatural female has conjured me to guide another soul from one end of hell to the other. It's my second time. My second time. Um, except the first time it was backwards. Summoned not from heavenly authorities, but from hellish authorities. From a savage witch, Erichtho. Summoned not to guide someone from the top down, but from the bottom up. Right? Um, all kinds of um sketchiness involved, right? Like I said, it's not, um, uh, yeah, Serena, isn't it tantalizing that we have no idea whom it was that he was consulting? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, no, no, sorry, Jocelyn. I, I, I apologize. I, I think I'm confusing things by talking about the Witch of Endor. That's different witch. Different witch. Eric, though, I'm, I'm, I'm making a comparison here. Um, and, and I'm making it because I'm pretty sure that this would have been in the minds of Dante and his audience as well. Okay. Two completely separate but very parallel stories. Right? Um, leader who is on the way out and who is on the downhill slope of his career, right? Somebody who is very emphatically on the back nine of his rulership, right, is um, consults a necromancer in order to get information. And the information that he gets is bad news. The female witch necromancer does what he tells him, what he tells her to do, and she conjures up a shade who gives information, and the information that he gives is that you're hosed, basically, right? 
both of those stories, one happened in Lucan's Pharsalia. The witch was a Richtho. That's the story that Virgil is explicitly referring to. And he was not the soul conjured up to give the bad news uh, to the king who's, or to the ruler, to the uh, powerful figure who's on the way out, who's about to lose. Um, he's not that. He's just the messenger who sends up the main guy. Uh, in the Bible, that same story is told. The king is King Saul. When he's having issues with David, uh, the young, not yet King David, uh, and um, I said, but Saul's having issues, right? And he goes to the witch of Endor, and she conjures up Samuel, the prophet, uh, who delivers to Saul bad news. Um, so the two st- totally separate stories, totally separate st- separate stories. One from Lucan's Pharsalia, Latin epic poem, uh, Roman epic poem. Uh, one. From the Old Testament. Um, first. Oh, first Kings? No. First Samuel. First Samuel. Yeah. Is it, is it First Kings or is it First Samuel? Or is it Second Samuel? No, isn't Second Samuel the one that starts with David becoming king? Like Saul's death? Yeah, 1 Samuel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, 1 Samuel. I was right. Okay, 1 Samuel. Sorry. Easy to get confused in those books. Um, uh, okay, 1 Samuel 28. There we are. Okay, 1 Samuel 28. So, I was talking about... I should have set that up more carefully, Jocelyn, and I apologize. Um, those two parallel stories are definitely going to... It's definitely going to be in the minds of folks who will know the Witch of Endor story. Uh, probably. I mean, the learned, those who have done... Had a bunch of schooling will know the Pharsalia. It, I mean, among, among literary people, it was a very famous poem. Um, so it's not an obscure reference in any way. Um, but, like, your average person is much more likely to know the Witch of Endor story than they are to know the story of Eric, though. Um, anyway. Um, he doesn't mention who it was that he was fetching. So, net result. Has uh, Virgil boosted our confidence in his guide credentials here? Oh, yeah, no, no, I've totally, I get sent by necromancers down here all the time. This is just like that, except different. Opposite, in fact. This is a promotion, because now I'm being sent from heaven instead of, like, from hell, but apart from that, it's exactly the same. I'm used to guiding, I can guide you safely, because I've guided the worst of the most damned sinners before, so I'm well prepared for guiding you, Dante. I mean, there's a lot that's awkward about that. Um... And again, it seems parallel to what has just happened, right? He opens his mouth in order to reassure Dante, and what he says makes Dante more worried, right? Because Dante can't help but think about that sentence that he didn't finish, right? And so, um, you know, Dante's like, you have been here before, haven't you? And Virgil's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, totally. When I was sent on a really sketchy mission before, so you can trust me. Um, Yeah. No, Karita, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and 
<laughs> okay, I will. Uh, Karita says, now can we really confuse matters by bringing up Ewoks? Yeah, different Endor, no relationship. The Quich of Endor has nothing to do with Ewoks. Perhaps should clarify that to make sure there's no questions about that. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. Um, which now we cannot enter without anger. And which sentence I feel like Virgil utters without consciousness of irony, given where they are. You know, the swamp that breeds and breathes the giant stench. Anger is the giant stench that this swamp breeds and breathes. And now they can't enter it without anger. And I'm really angry. Here I am standing on the swamp of anger, on the shores of the swamp of anger. And you know how I feel? Ticked off. That's how I feel. No apparent self-consciousness on Virgil's part there. Now the Furies. Now let's keep on the passages I don't understand. Each Fury tore her breast with taloned nails. Each with her palms beat on herself and wailed so loud that I in fear drew near the poet. Just let Medusa come. Then we shall turn him into stone, they all cried, looking down. We should have punished Theseus's assault. Turn round and keep your eyes shut fast. For should the Gorgon show herself and you behold her, never again would you return above my master said, and he himself turned me around and, not content with just my hands, used his as well to cover up my eyes. So Dante is covering his eyes with his hands. He's turned around, covering his eyes with his hands so he doesn't accidentally see Medusa, and Virgil is covering his hands with his hands triple protection against Medusa. And then Dante makes it much worse. I'll come back to that in a second. At this point, I have no idea how to respond to Virgil. his failures seem to be kind of replicating and replicating themselves. Right? It was like a ripple that started with his commendation of Dante in the boat. And then his failure at the gate. And then his failure to reassure Dante at the, at the gate. And then dealing with the Furies. Seriously? Medusa's gonna come and turn him into stone? Is that legit? Is that like a real thing? Is that going to happen? Surely not. Surely not. Surely there's nothing really to... Uh, yeah, Stephen, I, that's exactly it. Uh, Stephen says, Virgil does seem to have a severe lack of faith in the divine mission at this point. Yeah, it kind of does, right? Like, is, is, if that were really on the, on the table, that is, Medusa wandering by and turning him into stone... Um, that would be an obstacle, which perhaps, you know, the divine mission should have taken into account. Um, 
Yeah, David says, I'm most struck by the behavior of the Furies. Tearing their breasts with their taloned nails and beating on themselves with their palms and wailing. Yes, it is like a reenactment of the punishment of the wrathful in the swamp, David. I agree. I agree. And I also can't help but remember that despondency is the thing that was associated with the swamp before as well, right? Um, just at the beginning of tonight's passages. Despondency, faint hope, right? Uh, one of my favorite Middle English words. Middle English had a wonderful word uh, for despondency. Wan hope. W-A-N-H-O-P-E, one word. Wan hope. Um, Wan hope was a sin. Um, It means despair. But it has a different shade of meaning, right? Despair seems so absolutist, right? You can experience wan hope without being in full-blown Denethor mode, right? I mean, despair is kind of extreme, but you can be on the road to despair and still be suffering from one hope. Um, always loved that. Uh, always loved that word. And that's the thing. Um, uh, that's the thing that um, was associated with the swamp. Anger and one hope. Despond. And both of these, Virgil is experiencing openly at the gate. But anyway, David, back to your point the behavior of the Furies, them beating on themselves, just like the shades in the swamp are beating and chewing on themselves and each other. Um, It's no surprise that the Furies are here. Just that it's no surprise that dog-like Cerberus, triple dog-like Cerberus, was in the circle of gluttony. Right? Remember these pagan figures, you know, pagan god figures, pagan mythological figures that we're meeting, um, are not the... Well, they are the real. They're the truth behind the pagan myths, the pagan stories, right? But they're demons. They're all demons. Everybody that all those, everybody that we meet, uh, is either a shade or a demon. The Furies are demons, and just like Cerberus in the circle of gluttony, he is not only a part of the punishment; he is experiencing the punishment as well. Look at him eating the mud, right? Under the rain. Um, The Furies are experiencing the same spiritual phenomena manifested in the same physical way that the shades in the swamp are. So, David, the conclusion I draw from that, we're we're still there. We've not left this zone, right? We're We're still in the angry place. This is still the circle of anger. 
assuming it's not also the circle of avarice. Um, that's still where we are. And so that, again, just to me, makes so much of this really conspicuous. They threaten him with Medusa. Dante with Medusa. Should the Gorgon show herself and you behold her, never again would you return above. Dante, or sorry, Virgil talks as if the failure of their quest is really on the table. And he makes sure, makes sure that Dante protects himself. And what does he do? Has him cover his eyes, and then he double covers his eyes. Dante closes his eyes, level one, puts his hand over his eyes, level two. Virgil's hands on top of his hands, level three. A triple protection. I guess you could say four in the sense that he turns back too, right? Quadruple protection against seeing Medusa. Weren't they supposed to be looking out for the angel who's coming? Right? For the messenger? The one who shall come who is going to let them through? And now Dante can't see anything. Wasn't, wait, wasn't seeing things what he was supposed to be doing? Isn't he down here to look? Wasn't that the, the sort of mission or charge he's been sent on? Does it seem likely that while he's looking around hell, you know, doing what he was sent from above to do by this divine sanction, um, does it seem likely that in performing that he would look at something that would kill him? Um... Then Dante makes it worse. O you possessed of sturdy intellects, observe the teaching that is hidden here beneath the veil of verses so obscure. I hate it when he does this. Oh my goodness. Like, as if people needed provocation. As if we needed goading. Right? Interpret this allegorically, says Dante. Now, here's another thing I don't know. I don't know what he's referring to there. <laughs> so, well, I'm sorry, Dante. I'm such a poor reader of your poem that not only have I failed to observe the teaching that is hidden beneath the veil of verses so obscure, I don't even know which verses you're referring to. Is it those? Is it this moment? Or is it what's about to happen? The messenger who's about to go. Is this a setup for the next passage? Or is this a reflection on the passage that just happened? I don't even know. Many commentators seem to speak as if it's the former, as if it's this is a segue into what's coming. So what you're supposed to observe is the heavenly messenger coming down to let them in through the gate. But I've never bought that. I might be wrong. I'm probably wrong. But I, I mean, the elaborate gesture and the elaborate description of the gesture, he turned me away and not content with just my hands, used his as well to cover up my eyes. 
O you possessed of sturdy intellects, observe the teaching that is hidden here beneath the veil of verses so obscure. This seems to me by far the richer passage for unpacking, for um, peeling back those veils, right? Those layers. Um, in what sense is Virgil... Virgil is embracing Dante and... Um, so, like, what's with the embrace? What's the significance of the hands over hands? Um, how is this connected to Medusa? Um, yeah, Stephen is thinking maybe it's both, right? Kit was saying probably both. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I could buy that. I could buy that. Um, I always get twitchy when poets throw out direct challenges like that. Reminds me of another Bible passage. Revelation, right? Um, the verse that always drives me crazy in the description of the beast. That figure generally called Antichrist, though never in Revelation is this figure called Antichrist. Um, the beast from the sea. Uh, and it's the 666 passage. It's the passage that talks about the number of the beast, right? And it shall be a number of a man, and his number shall be uh, 600, threescore, and six. But right before that, there's that verse that says, let him who readeth understand. And I'm always like, oh, come on. <laughs> I just, I always get twitchy when writers give that kind of uh, tip. It always gets, in my experience, whenever, whenever, whenever writers do that, it always gets messy. It always gets messy. Um, anyway. Oh, yeah, of course, the other reason that I can't help but associate that injunction, the interpretation injunction there with the Dante and the hands part rather than the coming of the messenger part is that it's the veils, the the reference to veils, right? We have literally veils to peel back. And what do we reveal underneath? Dante, right? Dante himself is literally veiled, right? He is veiling his eyes multiple times with multiple layers of veils over his own eyes. And he's asking us to observe, right? Remove the veils from our own eyes so that we can see beneath the veils of his verse. I mean, it, just, it works on so many different levels that I just cannot, I, I, I cannot understand when people only apply this to the coming of the angelic messenger. That just, I can't, I can't, I can't get that. Um, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. The four coverings of his eyes and the four levels of allegory, William, exactly, exactly. It's just, that's just it. That's just exactly it. Um, but can I do it? No, I don't know. I don't get it. Um, But again, the, to me, the trend of this whole passage, this is, this, is, this is Virgil's worst hour. Virgil looks bad. 
again and again, and in the same ways again and again. Virgil is falling short all over the place. And and again, I can't help but go back to Filippo Argenti and think that and feel justified in the uneasiness that we were talking about at the end of last time. Um, yeah. Right. Stephen says, so Dante is veiling his meaning and we're trying to see past the veil. So allegorically, Dante is Virgil and the reader is Medusa. Yes. Or are we like Dante, removing the veils? And if we do, we'll see Medusa. <laughs> so, like, his allegorical meaning is Medusa. So it's dangerous to us, and that's why he's veiling it in obscure veils of allegory. Except that doesn't make any sense because it's not supposed to be dangerous. It's not supposed to be deadly to us. Um, Kind of the opposite, in fact. Um, I'm tempted. And I don't know if this, as an interpretation of this passage, is justified at all. It feels kind of sloppy to me. But but here's what I'm tempted to say anyway. I'm tempted to say the obscurity here. We're being invited, maybe, to see through the narrative itself. Look, Dante's not going to turn on Virgil. The Dante character isn't going to turn on Virgil, right? Um, from this point on, Dante isn't going to be like, so, Virgil, tell me what I see here, though I recognize the fact that I've got to take everything you say with a grain of salt. Am I right? Because, I mean, clearly, you know, you obviously don't really know what you're talking about. Um, uh, we're not going to get snark from Dante after this towards Virgil. He's going to keep talking to him in the same ways, like, oh, you know, sea of wisdom and whatever else. Like, he's going to keep talking like that to Virgil. Dante, the Dante character's trip is not disrupted by this. This is a, a brief moment, and once we get through the gates, we're going to be fine. Business as usual for the rest of the time. Um, for Dante, the character. But I don't... I wonder if the teaching that is hidden here is not, in fact, a teaching at Virgil's expense. That we're going through this elaborate pantomime, and it's literally becoming like a pantomime, like with hand gestures and stuff, right? Um, That this elaborate pantomime is designed to lead us as readers not just to follow along with Dante characters you know, the Dante Pilgrim's um, experience, but to see through it, right? To distance ourselves from the experience of Dante the character and question the actions of Virgil the guide to see that Virgil's a good guide. He is a good guide. He's an effective guide, and he knows the answers to most of the questions, but he's not a perfect guide. 
And at the end of the day, he's a damned soul, after all. Which we are forcibly, and indeed quite uncomfortably, I think, reminded of with his Erichtho backstory. Right? Dante made that up. There's no evidence that Virgil was connected with that. Um, so many, in so many ways, in so many ways, Dante has undermined Virgil, for, gone out of his way to undermine Virgil through this whole section. Is that part of the point? Is even kind of forcing upon us a kind of distance? Is there maybe a danger? Let's think about Medusa for a second. I disbelieve in Medusa. That is, I disbelieve that there really is, that like Dante's actually at risk of turning into stone. I don't think that that's how it would work. My hope, my trust, right, my confidence, my faith in his divine mission is a little stronger than that. I don't think he's in real danger. I disbelieve in, in Medusa, but Virgil believes in it. Virgil buys it and gets Dante to buy it, right? What if there's something that we're in danger of seeing and turning into stone, but only if we believe it? Right? Virgil is the guide, but he's not the way. <laughs> you know, he's, uh, um, he's limited. We're as readers, I can't help but feel being reminded of this forcibly and again and again throughout this passage. From Filippo Argenti on, we're being reminded. Virgil has blind spots. Virgil is ignorant. Virgil is not saved. Virgil knows much, but he does not by any stretch know all. Virgil believes in Medusa. If there's a danger to us, Right. If there's something that's going to turn our hearts into stone, if there's something that's going to turn us into stone, maybe it's, I don't know what, buying into this, something along those lines, um, not questioning, failing to observe the teaching that is hidden beneath veils of verses so obscure, running with only the surface level, um, Going right alongside Dante here. Um, I don't know. That doesn't seem to me enough of an answer, a sufficient answer. And it's kind of sloppy. But that's kind of the direction I'm working on. By the way, um, in my younger days, like when I was in grad school, um, I think I actually briefly contemplated writing my master's thesis on this passage, um, but I got talked out of it um, because I didn't understand it. <laughs> That's what, this was this, in my younger days. This was what I always did. I'm always like, okay, uh, if there's a bit that has always seemed to everybody confusing and nobody really no agrees what it means, and I don't really understand it. That's just what I want to write on. That's just what I let's 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 try to figure this out. Um, uh, and often, many of uh, I was I was always drawn to passages like this. Uh, 
Um, which is one of the reasons, by the way, why I confess my ignorance with such delight in talking about this, because that was always the beginning of discovery for me. Well, I say discovery. Uh, on really good days, it might have been the beginning of discovery, uh, but at least continued learning. Um, and <laughs> maybe <laughs> humility uh, when forced to confess that I still don't understand it. But anyway, um I think, right, one, yeah, one more, one more passage. Let's get to the angelic being, and then we'll be through the gates and, and can get right into Dees next time. He freed my eyes and said, now let your optic nerve turn directly toward that ancient foam where the mist is thickest and most acrid. As frogs confronted by their enemy, the snake, will gather under water till each hunches in a heap along the bottom, so did the thousand ruined souls I saw take flight before a figure crossing sticks who walked as if on land and with dry souls. He thrust away the thick air from his face, waving his left hand frequently before him. That seemed the only task that wearied him. I knew well he was heaven's messenger, and I turned towards my master, and he made a sign that I be still and bow before him. How full of high disdain he seemed to me. He came up to the gate, and with a wand he opened it, for there was no resistance. For there was no resistance. This is not a fight. He doesn't come down and fight the, the, the demons and put them in their place, right? He just comes up. He doesn't kick down the gate. He doesn't bring a battering ram. He brings a wand, right? A tiny little stick, and he just pushes the gates open. Um... Because there's no resistance, right? This is not. A, this is not a. This is not a contest of strength. Um, that's the gate Virgil couldn't get through, though. Um, and yet the angel can get through it by touching it with a wand, and there's because there's no resistance. How full of high disdain he seemed to me. I'm not sure I understand that either. Disdain seems like a bad thing, a pride thing, a thinking ill of other people kind of thing. Disdain is usually a very bad thing. It's a subspecies of pride. Um, and a very bad subspecies of pride. If disdain is something that you feel on the regular, it's like... Medieval moralists would say it's time to re-examine your life, right? Um, now, of course, he does say um, that how full of high disdain he seemed to me. So maybe it's Dante, right? He looks like he's, I mean, he's not actually experiencing the spiritual phenomenon called disdain. But it looks to Dante like he is, like the the look on his face or whatever, or his attitude or his body language or whatever, Dante, based on his frame of reference, it looks like disdain. Might not actually be disdain, but to Dante, it looks like disdain. So does this tell us something about Dante rather than about the angel? That it he looks full of high disdain? Um... Yeah. Now, does it make it better 
if the angel is feeling disdain for the demons and or the wrathful in the water, you know, in the swamp. Is that okay? Is that okay? I'm not sure it's okay. Maybe it's okay. No, I don't think it's okay. Well, I know showing dis- you know, feeling disdain for other people in life is bad. For the damned already? Maybe it's okay. Kind of feel a little dubious about it, though. Have to admit. Um, yeah, Carrie says, does it tell us something about the nature of heavenly bodies' interaction with hellish environs? Um, yeah, maybe. I love that waving his left hand in front of his face, right? He's walking across the swamp, being like, oh. Um, Stephen is thinking maybe disdain for the mire in the city themselves, not necessarily for the shade. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps. Perhaps. Well, to wrap it up, I don't understand the angel either. (laughs) So I think I can safely say from beginning to end and at every intermediate point along the way, I don't get Canto 8 and 9 of Inferno. Um, lots of ideas, lots of interesting things to keep thinking about. Um, really hoping you weren't coming here for me to make everything plain to you tonight, (laughs) because I can't help but feel that I've failed to do that. Uh, but, um, but anyway, lots of really interesting stuff to think about. Um, I want to pay a particular attention to Virgil and the attitude towards Virgil, and I want to see, does Virgil, does Dante's attitude change towards Virgil as we go along after this point? And are there any ways in which our relationship as readers with Virgil has changed? Um, This passage has certainly seemed to me to force me to distance myself from Virgil, right? Um, Not just to drink up everything that he's saying like the Dante character seems to do. What's the long-term effect of that? Do I remain distant? Is the narrative going to bring me back with Virgil? Or do I stay distant? Um, Do I come back? And how does that work? That's just another thing I'm going to be interested to watch as we go through. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. Anyway, thank you guys for coming with me on this exploration of the things I don't understand here tonight. Um, uh, we shall resume uh, with the Heresy arcs next time. Uh, but don't forget, next time is not for a while. So we're going to have our holiday break now. Um, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll 
begin again on the 6th, I believe, of January, um, the Wednesday, the 6th. Uh, so thanks, everybody. Have a delightful holidays over the next two weeks. Uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing everybody back again. I am going to be continuing my broadcast for the rest of this week, Silm Film tomorrow, Grifflet on Friday afternoon, and then that's uh, when then I'll be, we'll be off for the holidays. So um, thanks, everybody. And I will see you guys in a few weeks. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.